Faith family, this week, I sat at my office desk and I wept as I recalled what happened on June the 17th, 2015. A white young man walked into the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He interrupted a midweek Bible study and he shot and killed nine people. The nation gasped in horror. The national media swarmed to the city of Charleston. And two days later, the, sh the shooter stood in court in an isolated room and through a live simulcast faced the judge. But the judge did something that no one anticipated. He asked if any of the family members of those who were slain would like to speak. Nadine Collier stepped up and said to the shooter, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again, but I forgive you. One sister said, I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing that DePayne always enjoined in our family is she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. Anthony Thompson said, I forgive you and my family forgives you. We would like for you to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters the most. Christ, so that he can change you and you'll be okay. Do that and you'll be better off than you are right now. The world was stunned. They asked, how is that possible? How can people forgive someone who has done something so evil? Well, the answer is found in the gospel. Jesus Christ is the one who has the power and the authority to forgive sins. And that is what we see him doing in Mark chapter two. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter two. We're walking through this gospel together as a faith family in a sermon series called On the Move. And we're seeing Jesus move throughout this gospel account in a fast-paced, um, hard-hitting uh, approach of ministry, reaching many, many people for the sake of the gospel. Over the last six messages, we've seen Jesus baptized by John, tempted in the desert, launched his preaching ministry, called his first disciples, cast out demons, healed the sick, retreated to pray. Last week, we saw him cleanse the leper. Now in chapter two, Mark introduces the reader to some religious leaders called scribes. Scribes were lawyers who were also Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious leaders who looked religious on the outside, but spiritually were dead on the inside. They pressured everyone else to keep man-made rules. They put out in front of everyone this facade that they were spiritual, but Jesus saw through it. Jesus saw through the mask, he saw through the facade, and he saw them for the hypocrites that they truly are. 
So starting in chapter two, all the way through chapter three, verse six, we see five conflicts that Jesus has with these religious leaders. Now, when we get to chapter two, verse one, we catch up with Jesus, who's traveled all throughout Galilee, the northern part of Israel, and he's preaching and he's healing people. He's now returned, chapter two, verse one, to his ministry headquarters in Capernaum. Read with me in Mark chapter two, beginning with verse one. It says, when he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God saying, we have never seen anything like this. We see in the text how Jesus displays his power and authority to forgive sins. Notice these three realities here in the text. The first, I want you to see the determination of friends. The determination of friends. Upon entering Capernaum, Jesus is in someone's home, probably Peter's mother-in-law, but we don't know for certain. And Jesus is, verse two, teaching the word. The crowd is so great. It's standing room only. People are all around the doorways. And I'm sure that they were grateful that the fire marshal didn't show up. Well, after seeing the people overflow to the outside, these four friends, they don't get discouraged. They don't look at this big crowd and just say, that's just a closed door. They don't apologize to their friend and say, sorry, bro. There's just no way that we can get you to Jesus. No, they're desperate. They're eager to get their friend healed by Jesus. And so they plan a different way. Their strategy, dig through the roof. Now think about the significance of this moment. Imagine right now that quite literally we start hearing something above our heads. And for those watching live stream, look above you, okay? And all of a sudden a hole opens up, light comes shining through, and then four heads pop out through the hole. Y'all, I wouldn't handle that situation well. That's what's happening right here in the text. Here we see Jesus teaching in this home and all of a sudden a hole appears in the roof. These men, verse four, they unroofed the roof. Now houses in this area during this time period were typically one story houses with a flat patio as a roof with an exterior staircase. The roof was made of timber beams holding up the joists and they had a mud covering with thatch and twigs and straw. And so these men, they get to the roof and they start digging. Debris probably starts falling down on those on the inside. 
dust begins to fall like snow into the laps of those who are sitting there. The dirt and the straw starts falling upon those inside and all of a sudden these four men peer inside. Then slowly, carefully, probably with ropes, holding each corner, the man is lowered down on the mat. Except the man isn't moving. He's paralyzed. The paralytic, he's unable to crawl to Jesus. He's unable to hobble to Jesus. He's so feeble that he's completely dependent upon his friends to carry him to Jesus. Well, according to Luke 5, 19, his friends put him right in front of Jesus. And it's there that they lay him there at his feet. And there it is, the prince and the paralytic. These four men have loved their friend. They have labored. They have sweat. They're doing whatever it takes to get into Jesus Westwood. May that be a picture of us. May we do whatever it takes to get people to the feet of Jesus. May we labor, may we leverage all that we have and all that we are to see people brought to faith in Christ. You see, faithful Christ followers do whatever it takes to get people to the feet of Jesus. May that be true of us. That in our minds and in our hearts, I'm gonna say, God, whatever it takes, would you use me to bring as many people as possible to Christ? May we leverage our relationships and our resources. May we financially start being generous and going over the top because we want to see people come to know Jesus. May we lose sleep because we're on our faces begging for God to save people who are far from him. May we do whatever it takes to bring people to the feet of Jesus. But I also want you to see here in the text, not only the determination of these four men, but secondly, the deity of Jesus Christ. Notice what happens next, verse five. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees the faith of these five men. Now don't miss that. They proved their faith by what they did. You see, actions prove faith. You may say you believe something, but it's proven through your life. People will see on the outside what you believe on the inside. Well, Jesus says, verse five, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he is declaring his deity. Jesus is claiming that he is God almighty because who can forgive sins but God alone? And since the paralytic was a sinner, just like all of us, he was a man in need of forgiveness. He needed to go to God to be forgiven. In comes Jesus. Jesus is the one and the only one who has the power and the authority to forgive sins. Yet also notice, Jesus is fixing this man's greatest problem. Jesus is meeting this man's greatest need, and it's not new legs. This man's greatest need is not a new body. This man's greatest need is a new heart. This man needs to be forgiven of his sins and that is what Jesus came to do. Hear me, your greatest need is not food, water, and shelter. Your greatest need is not health, education, or the latest cell phone. Your greatest need is a divine 
pardon. You see, eternal forgiveness is the greatest need of every human being. Physical healing is temporary, y'all, but spiritual healing is eternal. This paralytic is still going to die. He is still going to stand before God in judgment and give an account. And so here is Jesus addressing his greatest need first. Spiritual healing, y'all, is far more important than physical healing, which, by the way, should affect our prayer life. Now, yes, we are to pray for the physical needs of people. Yes, it is biblical and right and good to pray for God to heal those physically. But may it not be to the neglect of people's greatest need that only the gospel can heal. So let me ask you this question. If God answered all of your prayers this week with the word yes, how many people would be saved? Let us not neglect praying for what is far more important. And it's not just the physical healing of people, yes and amen, but let's also be praying, God, would you... Take the gospel into the hearts of those who are far from you. Westwood, let's be a people who pray for the nations. Let's pray for unreached people groups. Let's be burdened by those who are spiritually far from God. Let's pray for lost family members and friends and coworkers or neighbors and teammates. May we be a people who pray about what really, really matters. Here, Jesus is modeling for us what the priority of God is and he meets the man's spiritual need First, But I want you to see, not only does Jesus have the power and the authority to forgive sins, I also want us to make sure we don't neglect, he also has the power to heal physically. Okay, yes and amen, pray for both. But I want you also to see, as Jesus is modeling for us how we are to pray in the priority of God, notice how the scribes and Pharisees push back. They don't like this. They start thinking to themselves, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does Jesus think that he is? But once again, we see the deity of Christ because Jesus knows their thoughts. Put your finger on verse eight. It says right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? May I say to you, beloved, Jesus knows every motive of every human heart and thought. He is fully aware of everything you are hiding in your heart. He knows your thoughts before you think them. You see, Jesus sees deep in your heart what no one else can see. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, A man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart. 
Psalm 139, verse one. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. Though our thoughts are hidden from the eyes of man, God sees them clear as day. You cannot hide your thoughts or the motives of your heart from an all-seeing, all-knowing, sovereign God. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. He is seeing through the hearts of these religious leaders and he is unpacking their motives. Yet also notice that we see Jesus is declaring himself as God by how he names himself. Look at verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk, but so that you may know that the son of man. Now you and I, we're gonna get pretty well acquainted with this phrase because it shows up 14 times in Mark's gospel. In fact, son of man is Jesus' favorite reference or title that he gives to himself. This is a significant title here because Jesus is quoting Daniel chapter 7, which speaks of the Son of Man. Who is this Son of Man, Daniel 7? He is the one who is the exalted Messiah who comes with the clouds of heaven and receives authority, glory, and sovereign power from God. He is, Daniel 7, the Son of Man who will set up an eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament to these scribes and Pharisees, and he calls himself the Son of Man, who, look at verse 10, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus proves his authority by looking down at the paralytic and commanding him, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. Verse 12, immediately he got up took the mat and went out in front of every man, everyone. The man, he was healed instantly. He was healed immediately. There's no orthopedic surgery. There's no physical therapy. There's no developing muscles until you're strong enough to stand. No calling insurance agencies and companies, praise God. Instantaneous response. He was healed immediately. You see, Jesus has the power to forgive sins and he proves it through raising the paralytic and giving him fresh legs and a fresh body. You see, the miracles of Jesus validate the message of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the man came into the presence of Jesus horizontal, but after encountering Jesus, he leaves upright. A foreshadowing of Jesus who is going to go into the grave but is going to come back alive. And this is also a picture of you. Before you came to faith in Jesus, spiritually, you and I, we were paralyzed. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. We could not rescue ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. We were dependent upon another. We needed someone who could give us life. 
We heard the gospel. The Lord sent someone to us who told us the good news of Christ crucified, who goes to the cross, dies in our place, and through him forgives us of sin, adopts us into his family, gives us an inheritance. And we go from being horizontal to being made alive. God brought you to life. And then we see the men, verse 12, walk out in front of everyone. Jesus has not only raised you up, but he has sent you out on mission to go out into the world with freedom and with forgiveness. And you get to declare to the world, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Westwood, may we never get to the point where we get over this. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were headed for hell, but now you have a home in heaven. We once were paralyzed spiritually, but God raised you up and made you alive. This is the gospel that transforms everything about us. And so we see this transformation take place in the life of this man. Third thing I want you to see in the text is the dumbfounded crowd. They're just dumbfounded. Verse 12, as a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God saying, we have never seen anything like this. They're astounded, they're amazed. This man was probably dancing and shouting and stomping and hooping and hollering because he once was paralyzed, but now he's got a new body. Don't miss this, y'all. This is a foretaste of your future. There's coming a day in which God's going to give you a new body. You, that which is now dead physically is going to be made alive. God is going to bring to life those who are physically dead but spiritually alive in him. God's going to raise you up and you're going to have a new body. It will never get sick. It will never sin. It will never die. You will be with Christ. Y'all, let's not get over what just happened here in the life of this man and let's not allow ourselves to get over what Jesus has done in us. Don't ever get over your salvation. Don't ever allow yourself to get to the point where you go spiritually dry. Be amazed of what God has done in you. You have reason to shout and to dance and to sing and to hoop and to holler. It's because what once was dead has now been made alive. This is who you are in Christ. It changes everything about you. You are now alive in Christ. And the crowd was amazed. We've never seen anything like this. Question to people look at you and say, well, I've never seen anything like this. This person's been changed. They're in love with Jesus. They look drastically different than the rest of the world. May that be a testimony of you and I that we display before a watching world the power and the beauty of the gospel that God is able to take dead things and make them alive and he's able to take those who are paralyzed and bring them to new life. That's what we see God doing here in the text. You see, because of Jesus, you have been forgiven forever. Mm. So what is forgiveness? In your notes, I made five components of forgiveness, um, a mark that I want you to see. Y'all, there are many, many, many more. But for the sake of time, I gave you five. The first is this. Forgiveness is not a feeling. There may be times in which you don't feel forgiven. Or there may be times in which you don't feel like forgiving someone else. But you see, forgiveness is not about your feeling, it's a decision of the will. 
in times in which you don't feel like it, it is a decision in which you make up your mind, I am going to forgive. You see, there may be times in which you just don't feel like forgiving someone, but remember, God did not wait until you were good enough to earn his forgiveness. God did not wait until you were forgivable. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Forgiveness is not about a feeling. It's a decision of the will. But I want you to see, secondly, that forgiveness is the cancellation of a debt. You see, when a sin is committed, then a debt has occurred. We have a sin debt against God. So how do we pay him back? What are the wages of sin? Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Therefore, in order for our sin debt to be canceled, a death has to occur. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus pays the debt through his death that you could never pay. And so either you have to pay for your sin or you look to Jesus. But in order for forgiveness to take place, there has to be a cancellation of the debt, which if someone does not trust in Jesus, this is why hell is forever. It's because the debt can never be paid. This is why the cross is so significant. Jesus' death was once and for all. It paid for your sin in full. And so when you trust in Jesus, your debt of sin to God is canceled through the death of Christ. So now there is a cancellation of the debt that we owe because of the cross. Praise God. Thirdly, forgiveness is a permanent position. How kind is God? He forgives us and he does not throw our past in our face. He does not rub your face in all of your sins and trespasses. No, no, no. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't rub your, your face in your past or in your, sin, in your sins. You see, Satan loves to remind you of your sin and of your past. When he does, you remind him of the cross, where God goes on record and says permanently, both now and forever, you are forgiven. It's a permanent position that cannot be taken away. This is who you are. You are forgiven in Christ. This is the beauty and the power of the gospel that God sets you free. He gives you a fresh start. He gives you a new heart and he forgives you of your past. Fourthly, I want you to see that forgiveness is free and freedom. Forgiveness is free in that you don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It is a free gift. It is a gift of sovereign grace from God to you. But also forgiveness is freedom. 
You are free from God's wrath because of Christ. And so now you are empowered to forgive those who have hurt you, those who have harmed you, those who have sinned against you. You experience Christ's freedom by forgiving those who hurt you. About five years ago, uh, a man came into our home to repair uh, one of our appliances and he stole a significant amount of money from Christy and I. And I found in my heart anger building up towards this individual and it was starting to trend towards bitterness. But Christy and I prayed and said, okay, we're going to forgive this man. And when we did, there was freedom. The Lord set us free from this. A few weeks ago, one of my sons brought up that event. We were all in the car driving together, and my son said, Dad, what's going to happen to that guy? And I said, Buddy, God is fully aware of what happened, and God will hold him accountable, and God's justice will rain down. And so either he is going to have to pay for his sin or he turns from his sin and he looks to Jesus by faith where God's justice was satisfied at the cross. And I said, buddy, let us pray for him that he will look to Jesus and be forgiven. There is freedom when you forgive others in the same way that you have been forgiven in Christ. If you find bitterness and anger building up in your heart, if you are gripping tightly to someone who has sinned against you, you are not free. But when you apply the gospel that you have received and believed into the human relationships of those around you, it is there that you will not only experience the freedom of Christ, but the freedom of setting someone else free. You see, to be a follower of Jesus means that you no longer can bring revenge. Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And so either the person who has hurt you, they pay for their sin or by faith they look to Jesus who paid for their sin. But vengeance is off the table and we entrust them to a sovereign God who judges justly. He sees the court case. He will make no mistakes and he will bring justice, which is why we pray for those who sin against us that they would look to Jesus where his justice was satisfied at the cross. I want you to see fifth and finally that forgiveness is blood-bought. Your forgiveness was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. In him you are clean and all of your sins are washed away. So what's the challenge? Okay, what, what are you calling us to do? What's the impact point? And it's this, forgive. Just as God in Christ forgave you. Beloved, I want you to... Hold fast to Mark 2, and maybe later today you, you get alone with the Lord, 
and you underline verse 5, you circle it, you highlight it, you memorize it, you plant it on the front of your heart because it's there that you hear the voice of Jesus speak to you. Your sins are forgiven. You have been washed. It's a divine pardon that you experience through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now, as those who have received an avalanche of forgiveness, we are now free to go and forgive those who have sinned against us. So how in the world can someone forgive someone who has murdered their son, murdered their daughter, murdered their parents? The answer is found in the gospel. We look to a crucified and risen king who purchased our forgiveness and now out of the overflow of what he has done for us, we now forgive those who have sinned against us.